I want to first redefine art the way I'm talking about it. I'm not using art as art. I'm not using it in a substantive way. As I say, I'm not teaching Picasso versus Pollock. What I'm doing is I'm using art as a set of data. It's a different set of data to give our left brains a rest, to engage our right brain, look at something that we don't normally look at. So when we go back to our left brains, my hope is that we'll see things more perceptively. And to give you a corny line, I don't mean it to come across as a platitude, but to say that the best things happen at the exit ramp of our comfort zone, you know, the best thing <laughs> you go outside of your box and you think, all right, let me look at something new. And all of a sudden you have this aha moment, like I've never seen this before. So I'm redefining art as a set of data. Sylvia and me. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hi, Sylvia. My name is Amy Herman. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really thrilled to be here. I am the president and founder of The Art of Perception, which is a company that teaches people around the world to look at works of art to help them with their observation, perception, and communication skills. And I've written two books about this. The first is called Visual Intelligence, Sharpen Your Perception, Change Your Life. And the book that I've just published is called Fixed, how to perfect the fine art of problem solving and how we use the process of looking at works of art and the art artist process to help us solve all kinds of problems. Okay. Um, not only are, have you, are you the founder of the, the Art of Perception, um, written two books, you're also a lawyer and you're an uh, art historian. So art, not everyone knows a lot about art. A lot of people think they don't know anything. And then there are those who think they know everything. You know, it goes from one spectrum to the other. One of the things before we go in, one of the things that I found fascinating, and if you allow me to just to read a little bit um, at the beginning of your book, Fixed, is on prep. Because you do have it, um, you identified three specific areas in the book that you've broken down. But the first thing is prep. And, and I think uh, what I'm going to read to me kind of talks to what you've done in, in visual intelligence and problem solving. And, um, you know, uh, jumping right into solve, uh, solve it mode with proper consideration of the scope, depth, and delicacy of a sticky situation can sabotage the final results. In this first section, we'll explore the three steps needed to prepare for problem solving, the majority of which can be done preventively before a problem even arises. And here's the key. We'll start with getting to know the most important player in problem solving, ourselves. Which, yeah, I mean, we usually wind up sabotaging what we're looking to do um, before we look at the first thing, which is ourselves. So uh, as you said, you know, we talk about visual intelligence, the, you know, um, art of perception. How did you, you started off, you were, um, you were the head of education at the Frick Muse Museum, uh, you developed the art of perception in 2000, um, and you were trying to improve medical students' observations and communica communication skills with their, with their patients. You have since 
um, ventured out, you've helped the NYPD, Interpol, uh, the FBI, uh, the Department of Defense, CEOs. I mean, it's not just how did you even go from working at the Frick Museum to working with the NYPD? Well, it's a most circuitous path, but it's been a joyous one. And I should start by saying you were giving me that lovely introduction. I am a recovering attorney is the way I put it. <laughs> recovery, because once you're a lawyer, you're always a lawyer. Yes. When I left the private practice of law after five years, uh, I went to work at the Frick Collection here in New York City, which is really a gem of an art museum. Yeah. And there have been some, you know, I tell people, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've been at the right place at the right time, but I work really hard and I'm unafraid. You know, I don't believe in seizing opportunities. I believe in making opportunities. So when I got to the Frick Collection, I heard about this wonderful program that they were doing up at Yale. And so I called a colleague at Yale and I said, I heard you're doing this wonderful program. Can I come see it? So what they were doing in New Haven was very simple. They were taking medical students out of a hospital, out of a clinical setting, bringing them to the Yale Center for British Art, teaching them to analyze works of art in the hopes that when they went back to the hospital, they'd be better observers of their patients. It wasn't rocket science. It was oh, okay. a really nice program. And so I got up my guts and I, I said to Yale, can I do this in New York? You can't be everywhere with your permission and giving you full credit for the creation of this program. Can I do a version in New York? And they said, absolutely. So I invited my neighbor, Cornell Medical School, because it's right near the Frick Collection, to participate in a program that was modeled after, after Yale's. And it went beautifully. And within about four or five years, I was expanding to medical schools all through New York City. And in 2004, I had this watershed moment. I was out to dinner with my friends, and I was explaining to them about all these medical students that I work with. And I said, their vision was so myopic. It was about kidney stones and hematomas and MRIs. They knew nothing about the world, and they certainly didn't know anything about art. And a friend said to me, why are you just doing this for medical students? Why aren't you doing this for people who need to see for a living? And I said, like who? He said, like cops. Why aren't you doing this for homicide detectives? And I thought, I don't know. Why am I not? <laughs> Monday morning, I cold called the NYPD. I picked up the phone and I called the poor guy at the switchboard. I just, he didn't know what to do with me. I said, I'm the head of education at the Frick Collection. I have this super idea. And he transferred me seven times, Sylvia. <laughs> and I finally got to a deputy commissioner who I'll never forget what he said. He said, Miss Herman, if this is such a visual thing, why are we on the telephone? <laughs> <laughs> Very Six good. But he got it. He totally got it. Six months later, every newly promoted captain was coming to the Frick Collection to take my training. And don't you know that that collaboration was featured on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and my world exploded. I got calls from all over the world from the FBI and the CIA and Interpol. And they all said the same thing. Come teach us to see like you did those cops in New York. And you know what? I can't teach anybody how to see, but I have a very specific methodology that worked for the NYPD. And after the Wall Street Journal article appeared, I left the Frick Collection and I, I now do this globally as my own company. Well, I know that, um... There are a couple of words that you don't want anyone to use, and that's obviously and clearly when they're looking at something. And you want them instead to use, it appears because of Y and Z. And you focused on, you know, people uh, 
look at things and they'll tell you what they've seen. And one of your main um, things is they don't tell you what's not there. That's right. And so how does that how does that really work into the problem solving? How do you, you know, take someone and get them to see what's not there and realize how important that is? And you do it with art, which we started at the beginning. A lot of people don't know much about art. And when you talk about, you know, uh, people in, 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 uh, uh, detectives or police officers. Um, and this is not, I'm not putting anyone down. I'm just saying, you know, most, most people do not think about art. We might think so. Right. Because unless, unless we were exposed to it growing up or some picture or painting or something caught our eye, we're not thinking about it. We'll walk into the store and go, look, I like that. I'd like it over my couch or over my desk. What most people say, Sylvia, and again, I don't, I don't blame them. They say, what's in it for me? You know, what, what exactly. am I Exactly. And I want to first redefine art the way I'm talking about it. I'm not using art as art. I'm not using it in a substantive way. As I say, I'm not teaching Picasso versus Pollock. What I'm doing is I'm using art as a set of data. It's a different set of data to give our left brains a rest, to engage our right brain, look at something that we don't normally look at. So when we go back to our left brains, my hope is that we'll see things more perceptively. And to give you a corny line, I don't mean it to come across as a platitude, but to say that the best things happen at the exit ramp of our comfort zone, you know, the best thing, you go outside of your box and you think, all right, let me look at something new. And all of a sudden you have this aha moment, like I've never seen this before. So I'm redefining art as a set of data And I, as I said to you before, I connect the dots. I take works of art and I connect them with people who, as you said, and I don't say this in the pejorative, don't look at works of art for a living. And I say, the process of looking at this work of art, discussing it and analyzing it, I promise it is directly applicable and highly transferable to the work that you do every day. And as soon as I show people that, and the question you had asked me was about talking about what's not there. And this has a name and it's called the pertinent negative. And I stole the concept, and I say stole in in (laughs) quotes, I don't like to steal anything. It comes from emergency medicine, so it's really not proprietary. What the pertinent negative is, is when a person comes into the emergency room and the doctor assesses visually, and they think that this, let's say that they think the patient has pneumonia, just saying, pneumonia has three main symptoms. The doctor observes symptom one, she observes symptom two, But if symptom three is conspicuously absent, it's the pertinent negative. You need to say symptom three isn't there because if it's not there, it's not pneumonia. Right. The idea of saying what you don't see, it's a critical skill because when you're saying what you observe, you're only giving half the picture. So when you evaluate someone for their job, let's say you give them a job performance. If you only tell them what they do and don't tell them what they don't do, how are they supposed to fix it? If you have an expectation of behavior and that behavior doesn't manifest, you need to say, well, I noticed this, but I also noticed that this didn't happen. Why didn't it happen? And so I teach people in paintings when they tell me, you know, I noticed this, this, and this. I said, but what isn't there? What did you expect to be there? What do you think should be there? 
what is conspicuously absent so that I plant the idea of the pertinent negative to become automatic. Because you know what? We all have enough on our plates. We don't need to be thinking, oh, Amy told me to look at X, Y, and Z. No, I want this to be automatic. So thinking about, you know, what it's like when your children come home from school, what they don't tell you is as important as what they do tell you. And that's that's the other thing. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a talent, something that, as you said, as a parent, um, we have to make sure that we're aware of that. That's exactly because right. it's it's so important because children um, are usually very open about certain things, and really, you have to right. open your ears to hear what they're not saying. That's right. And it takes, I'm not, I'm not pretending it doesn't take effort, but if you start to, you know, there's this wonderful, another one of these corny sayings, but I love it. It came from an intelligence colleague of mine. He said, neurons that fire together, wire together. And when you look at a certain work of art, your brain, you're engaging your brain in a way that other things, other stimuli you know, don't have your brain respond that way. So my hope is that if we look at art together, your neurons are going to fire together so that when it comes to having to solve problems, your neurons are going to wire together to use that analysis of works of art. And so by thinking about the pertinent negative, I'm trying to wire my brain and those of my readers and the participants in my seminar to say, okay, I'm looking at this situation. I'm looking at this, you know, traffic accident. I'm an eyewitness. What did I see happen? But what didn't I see? When a tra- here's an example, when a car accident happens, does anyone jump out of the car? If no one jumped out of the car, somebody's injured. Somebody died. What didn't happen that you expect to happen? So I want the pertinent negative to become an automatic part of the way we visualize and engage in the world. Well, you've also talked about how um, you can grasp that and, 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 and identify uh, something in, in a situation, how do you articulate that to the other people that you need to communicate? That's right. it, uh, you know, how, how do you articulate that to the other people that are involved? Well, you've, you've hit on a key point. I was just telling someone this morning, one of my colleagues, that I work with a lot of CEOs. I work with leaders and people say to me, oh, she's a visionary. Or they say, <laughs> I have news. <laughs> If you can't communicate your vision or your ideas or your potential and something gets lost from your seeing eyes to your talking mouth or your typing fingers, you're not so brilliant <laughs> because you can have the greatest ideas, but if you can't communicate, where do they go? And you can communicate in a variety of ways. You can speak, you can write, you know, opera singers, they sing. But if you can't communicate your vision and your ideas, it goes nowhere. So I believe that seeing and perceiving is half the picture. But effective communication is the other half, and the pertinent negative factors in in a very big way in effective communication. It's like a, a lot of business people, um, and and all over, they collect. They think that they're doing a great job by collecting a lot of data, but then they don't know what to do with it. They don't know what so to they're do with sitting it. there with files and files and files and 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 data that could probably help other people and solve some problems, but they don't have the skill, the skill set to take that and articulate it. Well, you hit on another key point in that observation. And people often ask me, you know, what does visual intelligence mean? And what visual intelligence means is, in the short term, it means seeing what matters. 
And our brains are bombarded by information every day. We have emails, we have texts, we have a 24-7 hour, 24-7 news cycle. You know, we, we have so much information. How do we distill it down to what we really need? How do we find what's important? And so visual intelligence is training your brain to distill that down the information to what it is that you really need to be more effective at work, engage in the world more purposefully, and have more fulfilling relationships with better communication. And I don't mean fulfilling relationships. I'm not a relationship expert. I'm talking about relationships writ large. I'm talking about your relationships in the world. And so visual intelligence is thinking about, you know, when you said we collect all this data, what do we do with it? Well, we collect data every day. Think about all we see and hear and think about and notice. That's all collections of data. What do you do with it? How do you process it? How do you distill it down? And most importantly, how do you communicate what needs to be communicated from the data that you've called? And that goes through, as we were talking about, whether it is, you know, CEOs, uh, people in intelligence, parents, teachers, medical profession. It's throughout, it's people. That's right. It's people. So do, you know, we are told that men and women think differently and and their perception and how they uh, collect uh, data and process it Mm -hmm. is different. How is it? and, And what is the difference? Well, I find it also differs by profession. But I find if I'm going to sit in the chair of sweeping generalizations, which I'm going to do, I'm going to sit in the chair of sweeping generalizations and I'm going to say that women, and I'm speaking across the professional spectrum, but again, it's specific to certain professions, women tend to be better uh, or more detail oriented. They will notice details and men are much better at the big picture. Now, of course, there are exceptions. And when you're generalizations, you know, you have to have that caveat. But I find that women focus in on details and men see the picture, the big picture uh, more effectively. And I find, give example, police partners, when they put two partners in a patrol car to have a man and a woman in a patrol car together, they're gonna see very different things. And it's very effective. Same thing, pairings of nurses. You ever notice when you're in the hospital, so many nurses come in and see you and the nurses each come out with a different perspective and notice different things. And I think that makes for more holistic medical care. Definitely. And, um, you know, it's the same with, with parenting. Moms and dads see things a little oh, differently. Yes. And, and sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes it's, sometimes not. it's not. But how also a very big, important part of my program is what I call self-perception. And I tie it to the artist self-portrait. You know, artists have to take a look, good, long, hard look in the mirror before they make a self-portrait. And sometimes what you see in self-portrait is or is not what they see. But I encourage my readers and participants, look in the mirror every day, every day, figuratively and li- literally ask yourself, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? How am I going to replicate what I did right? And how am I going to avoid what I did wrong? And throughout all of these professions or situations, there is a common thread that right. there is what is the common thread that, that all these situations have all throughout all these professions? What is the common thread for all these people? Every single one of them needs to have, they need to have self-perception before they need to know themselves. before exactly. they the world. And you know what they say on the plane, put your oxygen mask on before <laughs> others. 
it's the same thing. You have to be able to look yourself in the eye before you can look anybody else in the eye. You have to understand what makes you tick, what you do well, and what you don't do well before you can even begin to engage in the conversation, put your oxygen mask on before helping others. And, and that's one of the things, what you just said, you have to understand what you don't do well, which a lot of people think that that's a fault, but it's, it's not if you understand it and accept it, because then you can go out and, and find others that can, can put that empty piece in, that piece and maybe you know, help you figure out how to uh, fill that void um, and collaboration. Well, I want to hit on one of the points you just said when you talked about making mistakes, things that we do wrong. I spend a whole chapter in the book and a lot of my teaching on the concept of repairing mistakes. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I want to do is think about mistakes, not necessarily in the pejorative. And the art example that I can give you is the Japanese practice of kintsugi. When Japanese potters and ceramicists make bowls or cups or vases, it's inevitable that some of them are gonna come out broken or asymmetrical or cracked. And instead of throwing the flawed pottery away, what they do is they repair the pottery and they fill in those cracks with gold and silver and platinum lacquer. And you know what happens to those objects? They become more precious and more valuable sure. than been perfect in the first place. And what I love about Kintsugi, none of my clients are ceramicists. <laughs> How are you practicing Kintsugi? How are you fixing what's broken with resources that you already have? And the two things that I love about Kintsugi, I mean, there are many things, but the first one is Kintsugi honors the struggle. It brings all those cracks to the fore and it brings the mistakes to the fore, not only so you can you can celebrate them and bring them into the solution. Hopefully you can let other people see them so they won't make the same mistakes. And I am a cancer survivor. I have scars all over my body and I refer to it as my Kintsugi. It's how I made everything whole again, because here I am. There you go. And the, and the last chapter in the book is repair mistakes with gold. That is exactly right. And, and, it and it's, 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 it's a lesson that we all need to learn because it will help us on a daily basis. It will help us get through the bad times, the good times, the traumas, and, and really have a journey that we actually live and not just have, you know, flash by I agree. And when I talk about moving the mistakes from the pejorative, I don't want to mistake. I don't want to sweep mistakes under the rug. I don't want to pretend they didn't happen. We were talking about, um, uh, perception, I think, perception. We're about knowing each other and repairing mistakes with gold. We were talking about Kintsugi and how important it is yeah. to incorporate our mistakes into solutions. And yes, because it's the only way we're going to be able to move forward. That's right. So one something that that I've heard you talk about is um, representational art. Um, versus abstract art? Uh, I use them both. And as one of my intelligence colleagues once said, uh, representational art is like, is tactical planning and abstract art is strategic planning. And what people don't realize about abstract art, I love it when people say, well, I don't get modern art. I don't like contemporary art. And my response is, well, I don't really care what you like and what you don't like. This is about looking and talking about what we see. And just because something is abstract 
think about how many things in our world are abstract. You know, someone, someone will come into your office and they'll say, you know, I just met with Jennifer. There's just something about her I don't like. Well, that's an abstract concept. <laughs> Was it her perfume? Was it her tone of voice? And they'll say there was just something about her personal affect. You think about all the things in our world that are abstract, that are gray, that are nuanced. And by learning to look at, at abstract works of art and getting over whether you like it or not, and then actually articulating what you see, it's a really great skill in thinking about articulating things that are not in black and white, not to make a terrible pun. Amy, I think this has been so fascinating. I don't understand what's going on with the with the Wi-Fi at all, but then the little gremlins are coming in and, and you know. It you, happens. You know. It's part of, you know what? We have to fix things. And sometimes we just have to be agile and, and look at the circumstances and do the best we can do. <laughs> look what we've been going through. If we haven't been able to be agile or and learned how to adapt. That's exactly um, that's exactly well, I think your message is, is so important. And I love the work that you're doing. And, you. and to have it, to be able to use it in everyday life is huge because so many people don't understand it. Can I leave you with one last uh, takeaway, Sylvia, from the book? Of course. Thumbs up what we've been talking about. I want readers and listeners to know that they should not let perfection be the enemy of good. That sometimes when we have to solve problems, good is good enough. And that we can't always strive for perfection. In an ideal world, we can, but we live in a far from ideal world. And that sometimes if we just get to good, that should be good enough. We should celebrate that and move on to the next problem that needs fixing. That's Exactly right. That's that's fantastic. I, I love ending on that. But before we go, um, what is your where can people find you? Terrific. People can find out more about my work at art at the website Artful Perception, A-R-T-F-U-L, the word perception.com. My book website is artfulbooks.com. And I'm on social media at Amy Herman AOP and AOP stands for Art of Perception. So it's at Amy Herman AOP. Amy, thank you so much. Um, this has been exceedingly interesting and fun. Thank you. Thank you for having this, me, Sylvia. It was uh, really a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. This has been a Life of Prey production.